We're continuing our study of the book of Acts with Acts chapter 3. This is kind of a longer text. Um, If you want to follow along, you can, of course, pull it up on your phone. We also have Bibles at the back of the church. If you did not bring a Bible along and you would like to follow along in the text as I preach from the text, um, you can do that there. Or, of course, like I said, you can follow along if you have a device with you. I'll read the text for us, and then we will talk about it. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead." We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the gospel of the Lord. And uh, that's obviously a very long text, and we're not going to be able to go through all of it today. The text breaks into two parts, the miracle itself that Peter and John work, and then the preaching that comes after that. We're going to primarily focus on the miracle portion of the text, although we will make some mention of the sermon that Peter preaches towards the end of of this sermon. Um, But before we get into the text, we want to give a little bit of context. We're studying through the book of Acts, which we said is the continuation of Christ's work on earth through his church. The resurrected Lord Jesus commissions his disciples to join him on his mission. 
We found that out in the week one of this series where we looked at Jesus' ascension, where he said, you will be my witnesses as I continue my work here on earth. We found out in there, there's a comfort for us Christians that the mission of the church is not something we need to drum up in ourselves, not something we need to accomplish, but something that Christ is already accomplishing and asks us to participate in. We then studied how the disciples replaced Judas with Matthias. And the comfort we got from this is that ultimately, Jesus is going to get his work done. Though we never hear about Matthias again in the scriptures, we know that God accomplished his work through his apostle Paul. And so for us, as we use our Christian wisdom to try to do what is right for our church and for our community, we know that Jesus works over all things for his good. Last week, we were confronted by the culture internally of the church. Uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47 lays out what did the Christian church look like as it related to itself. And that was challenging for us. I think particularly as Christians living in the Western world in the 21st century, where much of Christian culture has been co-opted by greater secular culture, it's hard for us to see what Christianity looks like when practiced right after Jesus' resurrection, because in a lot of cases, it's not what we practice. But we also know the grace that those things beget themselves. As we start to invest in those things, they grow in our community. Today, we're shifting the focus. Uh, after the church, we've looked at the church internally. Now we're looking at the church as it moves out into its community. This is kind of the shift of the text where the, the church starts to now go out and serve the people around it. And you saw how that happened. Obviously, Peter and John are going to serve this man, but ultimately, they're also going to get the chance to preach to the people there. So let's walk back through the text and, and see what we can find here. Uh, the text starts on, the, on this day. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, which was three in the afternoon. Um, the Jews went up to the temple to pray three times a day at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. This is one of those times. Um, and, and for a moment, I would just like us to, to pause and meditate on this. Like, this is not binding on us as New Testament Christians. Christ has come and fulfilled the law for us. But just for a second, think about what would your life be like if you had to get here to pray three times a day? You would probably not be able to work the job that you're working, maybe. You would maybe even need to live a little bit closer to here. And certainly, if nothing else, it would mess with your productivity, wouldn't it? Like I said, we're not bound to this, but I do think this is interesting to meditate on. What if there's something really wise in this that God is trying to teach us? That, that if we would force ourselves to set times in the day where we would pray, even though we wouldn't necessarily have to come here, but maybe we did it at our desk or did it on our commute or did it at our meals or did it when we woke up or when we went to bed, that it would, it would, first of all, focus our hearts on what is most important in our life, but then secondly, especially if we did it during the day, like 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., it would break us from the addiction to productivity that our culture just has going on. But our culture is addicted to getting more done, fitting more into your schedule. God's word is about slowing down and realizing it is finished. And that you still have vocations, you still have work to do, but Christ has ultimately done it all for you. You can rest in him. Anyways, as John and Peter go up to the temple to do this prayer, uh, there's a man who is there who is being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful um, to beg for money. Uh, the temple gate was called Beautiful. We get this from uh, the Jewish historian from that time, Josephus. He says that uh, the gate was on the eastern side of the temple and it was particularly ornate. And that meant that the majority of people would actually try to go through this gate because it was symbolic for them. So this lame beggar is, well, being strategic. 
Right? He's going to the place where the most people are at the time when most of the people are there in order to beg. And when he's there, he sees Peter and John and he asks them for money. And then we get this really interesting interaction where Luke tells us that Peter looked straight at the man and John did as well. And then he says to the man, look at us. Now, that I think just strikes us as kind of odd. It's an odd way to interact with people, but I think there's a lot packed into this for us. The first thing for us to notice is that something linguistic is going on here that we don't necessarily see in English. In the original Greek, which Luke wrote this text in, the word for looked straight at him, as in what Peter is doing, is the exact same word that Luke uses two chapters earlier in Acts chapter one, when he describes how the disciples were looking intently into the sky as Jesus was ascending into heaven. And so what it seems that Luke is doing here linguistically is he's signaling a shift in the attitude of the church. Because you remember, the the disciples are looking up into the sky to see Jesus ascending into heaven, and then those two angels come behind them and say, what are you guys doing? Don't you have someplace to be? Well, they were. They did have someplace to be, and now they're starting to carry out that mission. And so Luke is signaling that. Now the church's focus has gone from being on Jesus as he ascends into heaven to lived out in their community. But I think there's something deeper that's going on here. It's that Peter and John saw this beggar. If you live in this city or if you work in Toronto, it is a pretty common experience to be stopped at usually a left turn light and have someone begging for money walk past your car. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in those situations, uh, suddenly my air conditioning unit gets really interesting. Maybe you have the same experience. We don't like to look at those people, do we? And I think there's a number of reasons why. I'm going to give you four. Uh, Three of them are really quick. The last one I really want to drill down on, though. I think, first of all, there's a sense of pride that we have. Like, if we we understand what's going on with those who are begging for money, we know that while some are definitely in need, there also are scams out there. And I think there's a certain amount of pride in us that doesn't want to be taken for a scam, and so we just avoid the thing completely. I think, secondly, there's a certain level of realism in all of us. Like, we realize that even if a person genuinely is in need, it's pretty rare where just giving them money would solve their problem. But you know this, in in cases where there's extreme poverty, it's very rare that a person just needs more money. There's usually something else going on that money can't solve, whether it's addiction or family breakdown or a criminal record or mental health issues, any number of things that money just can't solve. And so we realize, I could give this guy a 20, but would that actually solve his problem? In fact, it might even make it worse. I think a third thing is that there's a certain amount of guilt that we have. Um, We realize as we see that person walking past us that though giving them a 20 wouldn't probably be the wisest thing, we still could do something about it. But we're too busy with our own life. We're too busy going wherever we're going to go in our car to get whatever we need to get done, which, well, more often than not, is really kind of about us anyways. And I think we deep down know that, that we actually could stop the car, get out, try to help that person find the right resources in order to get their life somewhat back on track, but we also know we're not going to do it. And so I think there's a certain sense of guilt, and so we try to avoid looking at that. The last one, though, and this is the one I want to drill down on a little bit, is I think we are just sensitive to the really evil things of the world. I think we're sensitive to it. I think it's hard for us, especially because we live in an upper middle class suburb of a big city, to be confronted with the reality that this world is messed up. 
You know, the original purpose of the suburbs was so that people could live close enough to the city to have all the benefits of the city, but not be so close that they would have to deal with all the dark and evil things that happen generally in cities. And I have no problem with the suburbs. I live in the suburbs. I'm glad to live in the suburbs. But I think we have to realize that very often that's the tendency of people like us. We tend to want to believe life is pretty okay. If there are evil things, they're over there somewhere where we don't have to deal with them or they're not our problem. They're somebody else's problem. And so when we're confronted by something like the abject suffering of a human being who needs, well, just about everything, it breaks that facade, it breaks that illusion for us, and we don't like that. As one pastor I was listening to described it, we've outsourced mental health cases to group homes or therapists, we've outsourced the sick to hospitals, we've outsourced the dying to nursing homes, and we've outsourced the dead to funeral homes. And I don't have a problem with that, it's good to have experts, but we have to realize the necessary consequences of that. We're not interacting with these things regularly. There used to be a day where you would nurse your own family members back to health in your house, and if they died, you were the one who buried them. Now again, I'm not saying we go back to that, but I want us to realize what, how that affects us. But Peter and John looked at this man. They saw him. And it reminds me of the, the research done by um, a Polish philosopher. Um, I'll probably get her name wrong, but she doesn't watch our church anyways. So. And if she does someday, I'm sorry, Alicia. Um, her name is Alicia Zwengsa. And uh, she described that people look at other people in really three ways. Uh, the first of those ways is as scenery. Scenery. Uh, as the things that are just kind of existing around us, we know that they're there, but we don't take notice of them. Right, as you drove to church today, you looked out and you probably noticed that the sky was cloudy, but you didn't start thinking about the cloudy skies. You noticed the trees you drove past, but you didn't really look at them. You didn't think about them. There's so many things that are just existing all around us. We're not thinking about those things. Well, Alicia Sphinxa says that's kind of how we look at people sometimes. Think like grocery store, right? You're walking through the grocery store and there are other people there. You know that they're there, but you're not thinking about them. You're not looking at what they did with their hair or what they're wearing or whether their eyes are red from crying or they're in a sort of hurry. They're just scenery to you. The second way she describes we look at people is as machinery. So we, we look at a person insofar as they perform a function for us. Think, uh, again, grocery store, the person who checks you out before you leave. You might engage that person in a conversation, you might look them in the eye, but you don't really care about them beyond the function that they are doing for you, which is checking out your groceries. The last way, then, that we look at people is as people. Think about how you look at your family, your kids, your spouse, your best friend. You look at them and you, you grant them a complex humanity, that, that they have fears and cares and concerns and a future and hopes and a past, and, and all these things congeal into this person that you know that you treat like a real person. I think maybe for the first time, Peter, or somebody, was looking at this man on the side of the road as a person. But imagine how many people walked past him and thought of him as scenery. He's just the guy who sits on the side of the road. Or how many people walked past him and saw him as machinery? He's the guy I give money to so I feel a little bit better about myself before I go in to pray to Jesus. Maybe for the first time in his life, he was, he was treated as a person. And I think it's easy for us then to make the logical jump. Well, therefore, Christians, we should be able to see every person as a person and not see them as machinery or scenery. And trust me, we'll get there. But before we go there, we have to zoom in on this thought. 
That's how Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us as people. Jesus could have seen us as scenery. I made that creation and they messed it up. They sinned and they broke the whole thing. And honestly, I'm just trying to forget about it. He could have treated us as machinery, like every other God of every other world religion, of every other worldview. You need to make it up to me. Say the right prayers, light the right candles, do the right things, follow the pillars, whatever it is. You have to do this in order to make up for the evil that you've caused. Your machinery. But instead, Jesus treats us as people. He looks at us and he sees us. He looks at us and he loves us. He looks at us and he chooses to go over to us and help us out when we could not help ourselves. We were paralyzed in our sin, by nature dead in that sin. He grabs us by the hand, not by our choice, not by our works, but by his love and his work. He pulls us up. And the crazy thing about this is that he does all that when we don't treat him like a person. Do you notice this in the text? Peter says, look at us to that man. And I wonder if that's because deep down Peter kind of thought this guy isn't seeing me as a person. Can you imagine it? The, the beggar sitting on the side of the road. How many people walked past him and were scenery? How many people walked past him and were machinery? These are the people I ask for money. Maybe that man sitting on the side of the road didn't even see the people walking past him as people. And don't we do the same thing to God? We treat God as the scenery. We live in this world, we, we enjoy all of the blessings of food and wealth and weather and relationship and experiences and all these wonderful things. And how quick are we to acknowledge God? We treat him like all these things are givens, not things that we ought to thank him for daily. Or we treat God like machinery, like God performs a function for us. Like if we think we, we do the right things or say the right things, we are good to our neighbor or good to our spouse, then God's going to bless us. He's going to give us things. We, we treat him like machinery. Or here's the one that, that really messed with me this week as I was studying this. If you're a particularly pious person, you still can treat Jesus like machinery. Have you ever said this? I love Jesus or I believe in Jesus because he gets me to heaven. You see it? He's machinery. You're believing in Jesus because he performs a function for you of getting you into heaven. You know, the Bible's message is not about getting to heaven. The Bible's message is about being with God. The goal of Christianity is not to get to heaven. It's about, to, it's about being with God. It's about seeing God as a person, not as a function, not as scenery. And yet you and I know we all don't do that. We treat him like scenery, we treat him like machinery, rather than just enjoying being in his presence, in his word, in his sacraments, in the presence of other Christians. And yet Jesus still sees us as people, doesn't he? When our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, his eyes are fixed on us. When we're not faithful to Jesus, he is faithful to us. When we don't see others as valuable, Jesus continues to see us as valuable. When we're going through our life, assuming that everything is good for us, Jesus is the one actually making sure that things are good for us. The beautiful thing about the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus sees you. And if you're somebody who doesn't feel like you are seen, 
Whether you feel like your scenery or your machinery at your job, in your community, in your marriage, Jesus sees you. He knows you. He walks over to you and he heals you. Just like Peter healed this man. Uh, The way the text continues is that Peter then says to the man, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then taking him up by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Um, What I think interesting about this is maybe for much of my life, I read this text and I sort of dismissed it. Because as you think about this text as sort of the prototype of the church moving out to serve its community, it's easy to dismiss this text and say, well, Peter had miraculous powers from Jesus, and I don't. And that's true enough. God gave the apostles, particularly, amazing gifts so that they could confirm the words that they were writing down to be the scriptures. Um, in fact, the Bible is very clear. After the age of the apostles, the use of miracles is the, is the work of false teachers. If somebody is performing miracles today, we can just clearly say that person is a false teacher. That's what scripture says. But at this time, yep, they had miracles. They had the ability to do miraculous things in order to confirm what they were saying was God's word. So it's easy for us to dismiss it and say, well, I can't do that. But I think we need to press ourselves on this a little bit. Like, notice first what Peter says. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In other words, he says, like, what I have is not about me, and it's not really about having miraculous powers. It's about simply living out the vocation that God has given me to love you. And I think it's so easy for us as we think about how we love other people, how we serve other people, to say, I can't. I'm not the type of person who... But very often, that's because we have narrowed our focus to what we think serving other people looks like. But God has positioned every single one of us in the places that he has put us, with the resources he has given us, the personality that he's given us, the background that he's given us, in order to serve the people around us. And so you may not be somebody who has money, but you have something. God has gifted that to you by the Holy Spirit. How can you serve the people around you? I think another thing to learn from this is to remind ourselves that very often serving isn't about money anyways. Um, Maybe it's because we live in a banking city, Um, but I think one of the things that Cross of Life is really good at is is dealing with money. My entire time here as a pastor, we have never struggled financially as a congregation. We had an amazing giving campaign as we started to plan for our own facility someday a couple years ago. Um, And and frankly, if you look at it on the average, our congregation gives more in their offerings than the average congregation in our church body. And praise be to God for that. Now, we're really nowhere near the 10% standard that God puts in the Bible, but we're still higher than most, and that's a good thing. What I think we struggle with, though, as a congregation is generosity with time. Like, I think we would be much more willing to give $100 towards something than 10 hours towards something. I think we'd be willing to contribute a little bit each week from our pocketbook than a little bit each week from our schedule. And I think if if we're not willing to repent of that, I don't think we understand Jesus. Like, how did Jesus come to us? Not to come and be born and then die right away and rise right away and get the whole thing over with. He came and lived with us, spent time with us. And if you walk through his ministry, you see sometimes he's painfully inefficient dealing with people. Because for him, the primary currency he was dealing with with other people was time. 
And so you may not have money or you might have money. But I think the call for us, if I can just speak pastorally to Cross of Life, is to start to think about how we can be generous with our time. Now, you know what happens. Of course, he heals the man. But what I also think is interesting about this is this is helpful for us as we think about how to help others also. Again, we don't have miraculous powers, but if you understand what a miracle really is, um, which is to help a person to accomplish something that they could not reasonably accomplish themselves, we may not have powers, but we can do something that's pretty close to a miracle. You notice it right in the text how he says it. He says, Luke says, he takes him up by the right hand, helps him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles become strong. I don't think that's how we expect the text to go. I think we expect the text to go, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, and then that man's legs become strong and he stands up. But he doesn't. He's still on the ground after Peter has said those words, and it's only when Peter grabs him by the hand and pulls him up that his feet and his ankles become strong. And there's something for us to learn in there, I think. The part of our work as the church to accomplish what may be considered by some people to be the miraculous is going to happen when we're willing to reach down to those who cannot help themselves. Let me give you a concrete example of this. So my sister, she works for a woman's home in an urban area in the United States. And one of the things she talks about regularly is generational poverty. If you know anything about generational poverty, it is nearly impossible for a person to get themselves out of generational poverty. They need to have some kind of break or somebody who's going to help them. And just giving them money won't help them either. They need to actually fix structures in their life and in their family in order to get out of generational poverty. So let me ask you this, if you help somebody out of generational poverty, if you work with them, you're patient with them, you educate them, you support them, you forgive them, and they get out of generational poverty, is that a miracle? It's pretty close. It maybe is not miraculous, but it's certainly doing for somebody something that they could not reasonably do for themselves. Or let's take the exact same situation. Let's say we meet somebody who's paralyzed. You maybe can't heal their legs, But you could invest in them enough with your time and energy and money that you could make their life almost as normal as, well, anybody who had the use of their legs. Is that a miracle? It's close. And so I think we have to see this and not dismiss it and say, well, Peter can do that, but I can't do that. No, we are are called to do that. We're called to reach down and to grab those who cannot help themselves and bring them up. Now, that's not always going to look like helping a person with paralysis or helping a person with generational poverty. It's going to be the people whom God has specifically positioned you to love. It's the single mom who doesn't have time to deal with her children. It's the old couple who lives near with you that's lonely. It's your neighbor who seems like life is pretty normal for them, but you get these inklings in conversation that they're not doing as well financially as they might let on. It's your family member, that nephew or niece, who really no one gives attention to or invests in personally. It's any number of people in your life, but what God calls us to do is to be there for them and to love them because we see how Jesus loved us. To see them because we know how Jesus saw us. Ultimately, when this miracle is done, um, he pulls him up and the man is jumping and shouting and dancing and praising God. And this causes a commotion that brings around a crowd. Peter has the chance to preach to these people. And like I said, we're not going to walk through everything that is in Peter's sermon here, Um, but I do want to pick out just a couple big themes for you, and maybe you can take these themes and look at them as you study this text later this afternoon. Um, Before we get into them, the first thing I want you to notice is that Peter has the chance to preach. Compassion leads to a chance to share the gospel. 
Um, whether it's for the person that we're showing compassion to or the people that are around who see us showing compassion, we will have those chances to share the gospel. Now, the way Peter shares the gospel is instructive for us. First of all, we understand that Peter's sermon is scriptural. You notice he quotes a couple different places in the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy and Genesis. He also names Samuel and Abraham and Moses in his sermon. And there's, of course, a broad application of this, that sermons should be scriptural. That as I stand up here and preach, I better preach to you from the scriptures, not my ideas, not pop psychology, what the scriptures say. But I think there's a narrow application of this too, which is that when we get those chances to speak on behalf of God, to give a reason for the hope that we have when we show compassion to others, we ought to speak scripturally. Not with slogans, but with scripture. Not just thoughts that we saw on an Instagram post with some pretty flowers around it, but what the words actually say. And that's going to come from study, from reading your Bible regularly, from being in Bible study with me, being here on Sunday, being in life group with other Christians. Second, we find out that his preaching is, a sermon is preaching repentance. Um, maybe you noticed it as I was reading the text, but he gets a little bit personal, a little bit vicious in this sermon, doesn't he? Do you see how he said it? It says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and you killed the author of life. You think anybody was feeling uncomfortable in that moment? One of the things that's really hard, I think especially for North Americans, because we are such a naturally inclusive culture, we want to believe that everyone is welcome, is preaching the way the Bible preaches. Preaching repentance. Repentance is not just, I'm sorry. Repentance is, I'm sorry, and I intend to change my sinful ways. But I think we're not willing to be confronted with that, because again, we just kind of want to live the way we want to live. And if I can just be really transparent with you right now, this is hard for me. When I preach a sermon that is heavy on repentance as the message, it can wreck me. <laughs> you can ask Johanna, I will go home and I will like lie in my bed by myself for two hours just to like emotionally recover from doing that to you. Because I love you and I just want to tell you all the gospel messages that I can, but this is how scripture preaches. And if I'm going to be faithful to scripture, I have to preach like this. So let's be honest about that. This is going to make us uncomfortable. It's not going to leave us the way that we are. But it's also going to give us the amazing gospel message that when we repent, like Peter tells us to, to repent and to turn to God, we know that as it says later in the text, that repentance is brought to us by Jesus. That the reason you repent is because Jesus works repentance in your heart. That you don't have to drum this up. You don't have to feel bad. You have Jesus working repentance in you. And so pray to him for it. Pray, Jesus, I don't even know the sins I struggle with. Can you bring me to repentance, please? or I do know the sins that I struggle with, make me want to change. Because by nature, I don't. Repentance is something Jesus works. Once again, this is not about you. It's about Jesus. The final thing then is that this sermon is built on the resurrection, which is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Right? Every single sermon throughout the entire book of Acts always comes back to Jesus rose from the dead. And so should all of our preaching. Christianity is not just another philosophy that just exists out there in the ether. It's not one of many religions that you can choose from. It is the only religion that is based on historical evidence. That there was a man who was dead and did not stay dead. And because he lives, you also will live. Put your faith in that man who can solve the only problem that no one has solved yet. Death. 
And then know that because of this message, this word that is preached to you, you are saved. You are free. You will live forever. Not just with the blessing of knowing that promise right now, but the ultimate fulfillment of what happens to this man right now. Right? Like those of you who have broken bodies, you may not be paralyzed, but there's parts of your body that aren't working right. In the new heavens and new earth, when Jesus comes back, it's all going to be made right. You will leap and you will, you will dance and you will praise God. You will act in a way that maybe no one has ever seen you act in like 30 years. Because that's the promise of the resurrection. That's the promise of Christianity. So let me try to land the plane with this. Um, The next thing that happens, the beginning of chapter four of Acts, is Peter and John get thrown in prison. They get thrown in prison. Which means that this good deed that they did for this man ultimately causes a series of events that ends them up with no freedom. And that teaches us a very biblical principle that love costs something. It always will. If we're not willing to sacrifice for our God, for the people around us, we don't truly love them. And if we want to make a lasting impact in our community, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us money. It's going to cost us energy. But it's worth it because we know the one who gave up all for us, that the love that Jesus showed for us cost him something. In fact, it cost him everything. But because he bound himself ultimately to humanity, took on human flesh, and continues to live in that human flesh today, was willing to suffer God's wrath for all of our sins in our place, to give us the freedom of the gospel, that is that you do not have to pull it off, but Christ has pulled it off for you. You are free to walk out of this door as a loved child of God. Did all that. And it cost him everything so that you could show loves to others. That's how the Christian church moves out into its community. May God grant that among us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you have put this scripture in front of us to challenge us in how we reach out to our community. Help us to see in our unique vocations and stations in life the people who need us to reach down and grab them by the hand, to pull them up. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit. When we, give, when we get the chance to share the reason for the hope that we have, we preach the word clearly to them so that not only can they be saved from temporary suffering, but they can be saved from ultimate suffering. We ask that you would also start that work among us in our church, that as we look around this room, there may be those people that we see as scenery or even machinery. Help us to be a community that sees each other as people, the way that Peter saw that man, the way that you see us, so that we can be a place that is attractive to a world where People are judged based on their looks, based on their money, based on their success, based on their power. You don't work in those things. You work by your word, which saves us. You pray that you press that on us for your glory's sake. Amen.